You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. Music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny, but cold Davis Day. Don, it got below 50. I'm it gonna, got below 40. I'm going to take issue with your bright, sunny Davis Day. It's overcast out there. Look out well, the window. It's overcast. What am well, I, I had what I had you? sunshine at breakfast, which of, of course friends, that was three hours ago. One of my friends who lives in South Davis just posted a picture of raindrops splattering on his patio. Now they're widely spaced. <laughs> the patio is not wet. There are raindrops splattering on the patio. So it's overcast. It's overcast in the Sacramento Valley. What a novel condition for us. Mostly sunny today as we brought as we record the show, October 13th, Wednesday, October 13th. It is 50 degrees, which is I think colder than it's been here in several months. Going up to a high today of 70. This morning's low was 41. 41. So that has some implications for your summer vegetable garden. We'll get into it in a moment. Tonight is going to be 46. The day of the broadcast, we have another red flag warning. That's the weather service term for it's going to be windy. Uh, that's uh, So as you listen to this on the live version, live broadcast, it will probably be windy. 77 degrees with high pressure building, sunny north-northwest winds, 11 to 15 miles an hour. We just went through two days of that, coming back again, gusts as high as 23 miles an hour. It was more than that two days ago. So uh, we had one of those, our classic October, fall, north wind episodes of which we get at least one every October and into November. And in years past, there have been anywhere from two to five of these events where it's very, very dry and gusty. And then the next day, typically, that means high pressure is building. So generally the next day or so after those north wind events, it's going to be sunny still and relatively warm, at least during the day. The nights can be cool because the cloud cover is all gone. So Friday is going to be sunny near 79. Friday night is going to be about 45. Saturday will be 82 degrees. Saturday night, 48 degrees. Sunday, 76. Sunday night, 46. Monday, dropping down to 71. Monday night, partly cloudy with a low around 44. A cooling trend after this brief warmer spell for the rest of my tomatoes to ripen out there. I want to bring to your attention Daniel Swain, climate scientist that I follow on Twitter, who writes the Weather West blog, yesterday posted the following. The next week will continue to feature dry conditions, strong and gusty winds at times, and high wildfire risk across most of California. But there are strengthening signs that a more widespread wet pattern may develop around 10 days from now. Stay tuned. So we might have a wet end of October, which I can't remember the last time that happened. And we will let you know next week we'll what's happening, because it'll be a week closer. We'll, we'll certainly update you on that. That would be a major change. A typical pattern in October is we get about one inch of rain in the month of October. And of course, it's most likely to happen towards the end of the month. Hasn't been the case for the last couple of years nor during the first, you know, the, the five years of drought during the previous decade. So maybe we're moving back into a pattern of, can we cross our fingers and say average rainfall? Wouldn't that be? Ooh, wouldn't that be nice? That would be amazing. Wow. 
KDRT is community radio. That means public radio, which relies on the public. That's you and me to fund our operating costs. If you like the idea of community radio, if you like the Davis Garden Show, if you like Jazz After Dark, if you like That's Life or any of the other three dozen or so locally produced programs here at KDRT, you want to help us with our finances, just head over to kdrt.org. That's cater.org and click on the support button. You'll find ways to write a check pay by credit card, give us your car, we don't care, whatever it takes to help us fund the operating costs of KDRT. That's Catered, local community radio. How about and if you have other money that you need to get rid of, I know where you can buy plants. In addition to all the regular normal places around town, you can also go to the online plant sale at the Arboretum. And I'm not going to tell you all about it. Just go and look it up at arboretum.ucdavis.edu. A members only sale is October 19th. Is it start 19th through 21st? Public sale October 22nd through 25th. Check it out. There's lots of great programming here at KDRT. One of the fun ones is Album of the Week, where I think seven of us now rotate in to play one entire album by one group or performing artist each week. And uh, because of the eclectic range of the DJs who are doing this, it's an extremely eclectic range of albums. It does not podcast or rebroadcast. That's Album of the Week live Wednesday, 4 to 5 p.m. I'll take it back. It does rebroadcast once, Sundays, 9 to 10 p.m. So you got to tune in to check out Album of the Week with yours truly and I think six others who come in and play just some of our favorite music or something that takes us a little outside of our usual comfort zone. You know, they all play jazz, so what the heck, I might play bluegrass. You never know. <laughs> Album of the Week here at KTRT. Okay, we have lots so, to talk about. Go ahead. Lots to talk about, but first, it's October. And right. we haven't looked at the October calendar. Yes. Now, those of you who know, know that at redwoodbarn.com, Don's website, he has a monthly calendar with pictures that he takes during that month. So we have lots of things in October. And I'm going to this time talk about what to do. It says vegetables you can plant this month include broccoli, cauliflower, carrots, lettuce, greens, peas, beets, onions, and more. Much more. And yeah. you have the weather notes of hot, dry, and windy. Then it's going to get wet and rainy, maybe, we hope. Possibly. Yeah, I, don't, I, I don't always put that on there. <laughs> we <laughs> hope, yes. I was being optimistic. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, since it hasn't rained yet, if you want to go and wash off your plant foliage early in the day, you can remove some of that dust and some of those insects and, and just help your garden be better. Of course, it's getting so cold now. We're going to take it all out, aren't we, Don? Not here. Now, if you just moved to Northern California, uh, if you just moved to the Sacramento Valley from some colder climate, we are at the beginning. We're actually in the middle of, I shouldn't say the beginning. We're in the midst of a very active planting season for all kinds of things in the garden. The vegetable garden is probably, at least based on my revenues these days, first and foremost in people's minds. I cannot tell you how much kale and lettuce I've been selling in the last week or two. seems like those are the hot commodities for this fall planting season. Used to be broccoli, and it's cousins that always sold, you know, number one. And kale, of course, is a cousin of broccoli. But boy, those two, kale and lettuce, the leafy greens have really caught on. And I'm really happy to see that because they're so easy. I mean, you can, anybody can do this once, especially once we get into the rainy season, you can take a barrel, you can take a, I use 15 gallon containers because I have loads of them. You can put a bunch of them in there really close together, way closer than 
would be appropriate for the plants to develop to their full potential. Why? Because you're going to harvest, you're going to thin them, and you're going to use leaves and sometimes snip out entire plants. And you can keep that going from September through April easily. You can either let some develop bigger and keep pinching off them, or you can cut one out, that whole head of kale or lettuce, and pop a new one in, start some more from seed, whatever you want to do. I really wish new gardeners would jump in with the winter gardens when they move to California rather than the summer gardens because, well, we all love those summer vegetables, the tomatoes and peppers and things like that. They take a lot of space and they take some, some special knowledge. And you know, if this summer's results are any indication, a lot of folks were frustrated by their summer garden, mainly because they weren't watering them enough. Well, you know, even in a drought, we get enough rainfall typically for our winter vegetables with just a little input from us. And in an average rainfall year, once you get them planted, watered, settled in, if those storms come in like they ordinarily do, you barely have to do any follow-up other than keeping things from eating them before you do. Separate conversation there. The white crown sparrows are back, for example. But, <laughs> but the winter garden is easy. So you're talking about a half barrel or a 15 gallon pot or whatever how deep do the roots go with these little tiny lettucey things i mean it can't be more than a few inches is it right and i've experimented with this i mean with the bigger things like cabbages and broccoli that's a big plant making a, a you know putting a lot of leaves into the process of developing a flower bud or inflorescence or whatever part of that particular plant you eat so when i do them in a 15 gallon container i can get three cabbages in there, you know, three cabbage plants. But lettuce, you can put them six inches apart in a container as shallow as 12 inches. And as long as you keep it watered, and of course, keep something that small, if we go more than a week or so without rain in the winter, you'll have to do some hand watering. If it's bigger, you know, if it's a bigger barrel, you probably won't even have to hand water at all as long as it's out in the rainfall and we get anything close to average rainfall patterns. So there's a lot of beautiful, short, shallow, broad dishes that people, you know, plant things in and it doesn't work in the summertime because everything dries out. Right, not too bad, but yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't lettuce be good in that? And second question, if it would be good in that, would it be okay inside in that? It'll be great. In, they're fine in a smaller container as long as they're out where they'll get the rainfall and you will hit them if we don't get enough or if it's dry and windy. So October, November, of course, you still have to keep an eye on that watering because of these north wind episodes. Inside is not suitable for vegetables. You, and this, this frustrates me. It's not suitable for kitchen herbs either. And yet you see them selling them by the millions at grocery stores over in the houseplant section. We went through this a week or so ago, you know, people wondering why their rosemary isn't doing well, how long they can, how, what's the problem with their basil that they're trying to grow in their kitchen? It's not light enough. Uh, if you're going to grow those things indoors, you start getting into indoor lighting for plants. And well, that's, you know, there's very inexpensive versions of that out there. I'm looking at some right now, for example, because I have 32 begonias to bring in to my house within the next six to eight weeks, and they will want more light intensity than I have in my son's old bedroom. So I'm going to buy some lights to keep them going, keep them okay. It's pretty high light intensity required for indoor cultivation of lettuce greens and things like that. Now, if you go online, you'll see massive operations. I mean, big, uh, you might call them agricultural enterprises in urban areas or in places where it's challenging to grow things outside where they are doing very commonly lettuce indoors under lights. And it does work. And if you get into that kind of thing, you need to learn a bit about it because there's some things that can go right or wrong. You need fairly high light intensity, but 
for the average person, if you're suggesting they could plant up a bowl of, of lettuce plants and bring it in and have it on their kitchen counter as if it were a house plant, that's not going to work. That's not enough light for them. But you can keep it right out on the patio where you can admire it from the kitchen window. And you can walk out there and snip a few leaves for your salad bowl and then let the plant grow out some more and do that again. I'd suggest keeping a couple of those going, or if you're like me, a couple dozen of them going and <laughs> experiment with the different kinds. I think you'll find there's some lettuces that stay more compact, the bib types, for example. Others are kind of big plants and so you'll have to pick them more. Well, that's not a problem because the part you're picking is what you're eating. So I think that the leafy greens and of course kale I don't know. I've never really gotten on this bandwagon personally, but kale is unbelievably popular and extremely easy to grow. It is the most primitive variant of cabbage. It's a cousin of all those brassicas that we've talked about so many times in the last few weeks. It's got an open leafy form. You're not growing a head. You're not growing a, a flower bud or inflorescence or a side shoot or any of those. You're just growing it for the leaves. And you can pick them off individually as you like, or you can, if you like, go out and snip off the whole head, open loose head of kale and cook that and pop another one right in its spot. And kale and collards are basically the same thing. So collards function much the same way. Although in general, collard plants that I've grown are more robust, larger, need a larger container than kale. Other than that, pretty much the base, same basic plant. I want to ask you about a plant that I don't think we've ever talked about, bok choy. Yeah. Now, is that a winter plant, a summer plant? How does that how does that do? It's a cool season uh, mustard family member, cool season brassica, and uh, very, very, very easy to grow. And it doesn't even matter if it's beginning to flower. See, some of these other things, lettuce, for example, when it starts to bloom because of high temperatures or, or you're getting into the spring, it gets bitter. The flavor is is actually pretty unpleasant. Most, some people don't mind it, but most people find their lettuce is much tastier when it's cold or even when we've had a little bit of frost. Whereas bok choy, if it's beginning to flower, okay, fine, just throw it in your stir fry. And you'll find it's very confusing uh, in seed catalogs and in descriptions, because we just use the term in the United States, bok choy or pak choy for a whole range of these members of that family. There are some that make a rosette, that is to say a tight dandelion-like growth habit. There's others that are very upright and loose. There's baby versions and big versions, and you're eating the leaf or the stem or different parts of them, but all parts are edible. All parts taste very similar. And even if they're beginning to initiate flowers, the flower buds are fine to eat. So it's a really, really easy vegetable to grow. And by the way, quite easy from seed. This is one case where just keeping a package of seeds around. And if you happen to cut out an entire plant rather than just pick some leaves off, just sprinkle a little more seed on that spot. And as long as the temperatures aren't below freezing consistently when it's in the germination phase, it will come up even with temperatures in the upper 30s to low 40s. So bok choy is one of, if you happen to like stir fry, uh, it's one of the simplest things you can grow. And I do recommend if you're just getting started on this, get the biggest container you can. I know, you know, Lois and I were talking about small pots, but get the biggest one you can. This will just make your life easier. Fill it with a good quality potting soil, which you will reuse. You know, the one, you'll have the one expense the first time, but you'll be able to reuse that and augment it in the future. And just put in as many individual little seedlings or seeds of lettuce, bok choy, kale, broccoli rob, uh, you know, all these leafy green type things that you aren't waiting for them to form some specific big thing. And uh, they were just using the leaves or the smaller parts of the plant and put them close together. I have seen as many as three dozen plants go into a half barrel of these mm. types of things I'm talking about. You can even try some root vegetables, radishes, <laughs> carrots, <laughs> turnips, 
they need more space. This is important. Radishes don't need a lot of space, but carrots, you know, they need the depth. They need the, the soil area to develop and they need root zone past that. So I've had fun with this, experimenting with it to see what's the smallest unit you can plant, let's say six turnip plants in. And we'll actually get six turnips if you do them in a three gallon container. I can tell you exactly what you get because I've done this for you. You don't have to experiment now. You can take six turnip plants and put them in a three gallon container and you'll get one big turnip because one of them will outcrowd all the others. Uh, the, the root system of that plant is bigger than what you were planning for. You, you've, you look at what you're harvesting, you don't realize there's like a three foot deep root system typically supporting that, which you obviously don't have if you have a smaller container. So you can do this as long as you snip out the small ones as they're all developing and use them in your stir fry or, or your soup or whatever and let the one develop. I would say root vegetables in general may not be the most efficient use of containers, but radishes are easy. And if you're going to do carrots, two really important principles. Keep them evenly watered. <laughs> yes. Number one, keep them evenly watered or don't and see what results you get. It can be kind of fun. <laughs> be sure to take a picture and send it to us. Number <laughs> Number two, so the the listeners, the, the reason that he's going on about this is that I actually grew carrots. This was yeah. years and years and years ago, yes. and they came out the most disjointed, mm. deformed, poor little things. And I sent a picture in and Dan, Don posted it on our website. Yeah. But um, so he, he ribs me about any time that we're talking about wood crops. So. Never let her live it down. So the other thing would be. No. If you're choosing a carrot variety for containers, look for the small one, smallest ones you can. So that would be Little Finger, which is great, by the way. They, they, they're three inches, four inches, very sweet, develop very quickly. Or one of the round ones, like Orbit, which is curious. It looks like a radish, but it's actually a carrot. Um, in other words, a smaller one. Danvers Half Long is probably about the biggest carrot variety I would try to do, unless you have a really deep container, in which case you could do the Chantenay's or the more classic, what I like to call the Bugs Bunny carrots, you know, with that big, deep rooted ones with the classic shape. Stick to the smaller ones. There's a curious phenomenon in our industry. All of my growers now do carrots in six packs. Yeah, that's your expression. I wish I, I wish I could post what? Lois's expression as we're doing this. Carrots, you plant carrots from seed, Don. Yeah, what do. is this? In you six do. packs. And I, you know, as a retailer, these things will come on lists and I'll look at them and go, wait, what about, why don't we just do radishes in six packs next? No, carrots in six packs. And there they are. And so I thought, all right, I'll just get them and put them out and see what happens. And we'll talk to people about them. They are selling as fast as lettuces and kale. So you know, there is one aspect of this that is valid. Carrot seeds very slow to germinate. It does take three to four weeks to germinate. And if you soak it overnight, you can speed that process up, but still it's slow. Whereas here you're buying you know, six carrot plants ready to transplant. Now the price per carrot. <laughs> that's six carrots, Don. That's not, yeah, I mean, price... the carrot plant makes one carrot. Correct. So when you get done, you think about what you just paid for that one carrot, but it will be quite delicious. And it's interesting. A lot of people are, you know, just growing vegetables for fun. Obviously they're not doing it for frugality in that instance. And I've taken some of these, I've just, you know, I've tried them just to make sure this works. I don't want to be selling people things that aren't going to function at all. Cause we had always said to people, plant root vegetables directly in the ground. So the roots will develop evenly. In other words, we're concerned about that transplant process um, causing disfigured roots. Well, it would if they're really overgrown. What I have found is nice, healthy, young carrot seedlings. I still can't believe I do this, but nice, healthy, young carrot seedlings in six packs transplant beautifully, form very nice little carrots. If you're growing them just for fun and you and your kids want to see carrots develop, it does certainly speed up the process. Um, 
you know, for the sake of economy, you might wish to buy a packet of seed, but bear in mind, it may be three to four weeks before they even start to sprout. So I think that may be their main reason for the popularity of carrots. What the heck? Next, I'll sell six packs of radishes. <laughs> I have a question on this half barrel filled with leafy greens yeah. that I'm going to plant and it's going to be so wonderful. <clears throat> Do the squirrels and the rats like salad? Yes, although it would be easier, much easier to protect a barrel filled with leafy greens because just kind of wrapping a tomato cage around it or something just making it challenging for them to get at, I think would be much easier than with your summer vegetable where you have such large plants. So right. I think in, in the case of leafy greens for the, for the winter, uh, yes, there's, there can be some predation tree squirrels, of course, will probably find them. Those are the most likely white crowned sparrows. Of course, if they get in there can do a lot of damage, but the kind of, it's the kind of thing where it's a fairly small thing. You could just make a wire mesh, top you know if you're having the problem just just cover it over with this thing for a couple of days break up the pattern that's really the key with vertebrate pests as we call them in the business you know these these furry and feathery animals that come in and eat your salad bar cover the plant over for a few days and it'll often be sufficient to break up the pattern if you let them come in day after day yes as far as they're concerned you planted that for them It'd also be easier to deal with the birds, in particular, the white crowned sparrows out in the ground, they like to hop around and your barrel could be closer up to in a place where they would probably feel less comfortable to come in and be close to you. I don't know how close to you a white crowned sparrow is willing to get, but my experience as I walk out there is they disperse pretty rapidly when I'm present. So covering them and having them closer in. Really, the more common pest problems on the winter vegetables are snails and slugs, especially with barrels, because they often are breeding and living down under the barrel. So this is a case where you can put bait out and the baits that are available now are just iron phosphate. So they're very low toxicity and they're considered organic. You can use those right in and around the vegetables. That's the Sluggo is probably the best known brand. Uh, or you can actually, you know, if your barrel is up off the ground, sitting up on like pot feet or something or little pieces of block, you can put the bait right under the barrel and get them right where they're breeding. So they're pretty easy to control in that situation. The other pest problem that's very common on the winter vegetable garden, particularly anything in the brassica group, the cruciferous vegetables, the broccoli, cauliflower family, is that white butterfly that oviposits and lays the little cabbage worm caterpillars that then feed on the leaves. And we see them in our nursery yard. We see them practically following the delivery trucks. They're everywhere. They're in your yard. They'll be very happy when you put broccoli, cauliflower, things like that out. Watch for them because of course, as soon as those small holes start to develop, you know the little tiny caterpillars are present. They do eat a surprising amount of leaf material. They're easy to control. The BT products, Bacillus thuringiensis, which is a bacterial product that when the original organic sprays, it works just on caterpillars, does a very good job on them when they're young. It does a very, it's very effective on the, when they first hatched out and the, and the holes are small. The bigger they get, the less effective it is. So the earlier you spray for that, the better. And I have also found personally that vigorously rinsing the plants as I'm doing for aphids knocks all the littlest caterpillars off. They just get blasted away. The bigger ones hold on pretty well. They've got a better ability to grip onto the leaf or the stem, but the young ones you can blast off and a lot of those eggs get blasted off. When we first see this white moth or white butterfly ovipositing in our garden center, we just start a vigorous daily rinsing to knock the eggs off. So you're not at least taking them home with you. 
you have your own domestic population of these things, but at least we're not sending them for a starter kit. So we just use a vigorous rinse. And then we, uh, you know, if we see a problem developing, we'll pick off leaves that are badly affected. or just rub the little caterpillar off with our thumb. And that is quite effective. So they're not hard to control. They sure do eat a lot in a short interval. I have good news for you, Don. White crowned sparrows will eat those little caterpillars. Great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, so uh, one of the things that, that you referred to, and I just want to get the, your idea on, on this thought. Since I'm going to want to be picking the leaves of the lettuce and the you know, leafy greens, as you say, so I'm thinking maybe take some wire mesh and form it into a, a dome yep. um, that would fit over the whole barrel, but then have um, like three bamboo stakes that I can slide the dome up, yeah. pick some leaves, and then slide the dome down. Um, do you think that might work? Yes, anything, any kind of barrier like that. And I, uh, last year we posted a picture, I'll see if I can find it, of a, of a simple system that some of our listeners and customers used, where they would take half inch PVC and make a mm -hmm. dome of that over their bed. So these are folks that had raised planter beds. Raised planter beds. It was an arch. Yeah, an arch. And then they just took yeah. um, frost blanket, which is also sold as seedling blanket at a lot of garden centers. It's used to protect plants from frost, but organic farmers have used this for years uh, to cover over crops early in the season to prevent the butterflies from getting at them from ovipositing. And it prevents the winged aphids from landing and starting the aphid colonies, which are another issue with, with the cruciferous crops. So they would cover over the whole thing with something that allows sunlight through. This is really important. So it functions actually like a little greenhouse. And uh, it's not too much of a greenhouse that you're getting plants overheated in there, but it not only protects them from some of these specific winter pests, doesn't do anything for snails or slugs, but keeps the birds out. That was their main purpose. It keeps the, uh, probably keeps the squirrels and rats out up to a point unless they easily find a way in. And it reduces the problem with the caterpillars and the aphids. And it's a really simple thing to do once you have that frame over your bed. You can just leave that there during the summertime. You don't really need that, but you can use it to grow beans on or something. I mean, you can make a structure. If, if you're building a vegetable garden and you've decided to jump in and build a raised planter, the winter vegetables, it's a big advantage, actually. It makes it easier to get in and do things. It soil drains out. So even when we have a lot of rainfall, which does happen, we'll sure will flood again sometime soon. The soil drains out of that bed. The plants aren't waterlogged. You can get in and do the weeding. Um, things get off to a faster start and they continue longer into the spring because of the soil temperature. Um, this is the time to go ahead and put some posts or something. You know, just if you're building a rectangle at that time that you build it, put some two by two posts on each corner so you can just staple a frame over it if you need to. Make it easier for yourself to put a barrier because a lot of these things we're talking about a simple barrier is the easiest way to manage them rather than using a pesticide or trying to scare them away somehow. A lot of these white crowned sparrows, tree rats, well, tree rats are pretty easily scared, but white crowned sparrows and squirrels, they don't care about you. <laughs> they don't, they'll just wait for you to go back in the house. They'll come right back. So you just need some kind of a physical barrier, but make sure it's not a barrier that excludes sunlight. So that's very important that it be either an open mesh or something like this row cover that has a, is translucent enough. I wonder if one of our listeners out there might be the creative type that would, you know, design some, you know, dome-shaped thing that exactly fits a half barrel and it's got a hinge <laughs> on the back, and you and you know, you might you might 
make yourself a new occupation out there. Yeah, people <laughs> ask me like where, where to find this material. And typically hardware stores, lumber yards certainly have, but feed stores in our area, there's a feed store outside of Dixon that carries all kinds of wire mesh products. There are chains, now the bigger chains like Home Depot and Lowe's do have these materials. Chains like Tractor Supply are more likely to have a wider range of options. You want something malleable that two of you can just make a simple top to put right over. And this is one of the, I mean, we're talking about a very old fashioned method of pest control here, but it's quite effective for some of these fast moving vertebrate pests. I think there's a feed store on G Street that might have things too. Yes. Okay, October, back to the calendar. If you still have a lawn, those few of you who do, <laughs> it would be a great time to overseed. Okay, hold on, back up, back up, back here. A lot of you have dead lawn. What? A lot of you have dead lawns. It's not that you don't have a lawn because you chose not to have a lawn. A lot of you have lawns that are now very brown because you stopped watering them. As you drive around Davis in particular, where there's a whole lot of, uh, of um, houses where people have gotten the message to conserve water. There we go. Uh, they just turned off the water. And yeah. it's horrifying what's happening to the trees because of them having done that. But it is a very effective way to kill your lawn. I mean, if you if you want to replace your lawn, and I get this kind of question all the time, we've been thinking about taking out our lawn and putting in a low water ground cover and here are the checklist of criteria. And the first question is, how do we get rid of our lawn? And we've talked about that before. You're going to have a range of options from well-known you know, herbicide products to smothering it to, well, one of the simplest ways was to ask me that question in April. And I'll just say, <laughs> stop watering. <laughs> okay, that was easy. Water the trees, but not the lawn. Please water yeah. the yes, please water the trees. And uh, what I like to see is a dead lawn with a ring of green lawn around a tree. Because that means to me that that person gave the tree the water that it needed during the course of the summer, and then they killed off their lawn. They kept one circle of grass alive. Uh, we'll assume that you've dealt with the killing out the lawn part. Let's say you've decided you're going to live in a valley grassland which is where we live. Here in Davis, Dixon, Woodland area, it, was a, it is a valley grassland plant community. Perhaps our lawns should be rainfall season variable. In other words, you just do that in the summer, water less. Water 50% if you wanna keep a you know, cover, but not attractive. Water 30% less if, and use the right kind of grass, you can have an attractive lawn. Let it go in August, September. If you've decided, you know, we're having a severe drought, you wanna do your part, keep the trees water. Now, that the weather is changing and the days are in the 70s and the nights are in the 40s and we actually have rain in the forecast, it's an outstanding time to go out and reseed. And now is your chance to choose grass seed that's lower water using if you're going to have a lawn there. It's also your chance to reconfigure your lawn. Let's say you have, and this is real for many of my customers in the perimeter parts of Davis, shall we say the larger lot size subdivisions. Let's say you have 5,000 square feet of grass. I no, I wouldn't. I would have 5,000 square feet of bushes. Sure. All right. So let's say you have 5,000 square feet of lawn because you just bought a house and you just moved in and that's how it was. And it's being mowed by someone you're paying or you're doing it yourself. And you realize it's using 
a gallon a square foot a week, if you're watering the way I've told you to water, 5,000 gallons a week for that lawn. And our first question I'll ask you is, do you walk over the whole lawn all the time? Do you have big, do you have croquet parties? Do you have, I mean, I have a customer who has an entire croquet lawn. He actually has drink hangers on the trees out in the croquet lawn. So the folks can set their wine glasses in there while they're playing croquet and then step back and sip their wine while the other person is, is hitting. That's a very specialized situation. Though. It I mean, is. Yes, people, they... All you need is a little bit of, of green lawn right where you're maybe at the front door or where you look out or something. And then the rest of it can be bushes. Well, maybe all you need. I mean, I have gone to houses where there's a, a young parent family with three active boys, two, four, and six. This is one of my favorites, two, four, and six. And it oh, just... Yeah from the East Coast and uh, we're wondering about having a lawn and say, well, you're, this is a situation where, you know, you know lawn is pretty appropriate. Yeah, it's, it's just gonna function in your case as a, as a dust and mud collector before they get into the house. I mean, it's a, you, you may not have the kind of age bracket in your household where a lovely small lawn with a sitting area is appropriate. Davis, the demographic is aging. There's a lot of older folks who don't need 5,000 or even a thousand square feet of turf, but they may want 500 square feet where they actually do go out and sit or heavens play croquet it doesn't take that much space uh, so this is the time to make those decisions and it often hangs up and we've discussed this before so i'll just say this part briefly it often hangs up on the sprinkler system because people think they have to completely refigure their sprinklers if they're going to reduce their lawn area no i would suggest you look at your valves and what they're watering and look at the one that waters the area closest in and in most situations you'll be able to have one valve instead of three or four, watering a traditional turf area where you're going to seed in with the kinds of grass you're going to keep mowed at two to three inches and actually make use of. Further out, you can use meadow type grasses, no mow lawns. You can kill out the lawn and plant interesting grasses so that from the line of sight, as we say, standing close to the house, it looks like your yard goes from clipped into more informal, into more of a, you know, perhaps wild or even a flower border. Or you can go ahead and take out the turf in the part where you're not using it and put in shrubs or flowering perennials or ground covers and go ahead and use the existing sprinklers to water those. Of course, you're going to use them very differently. You can convert them to drip if that's what you prefer to do. You can still use sprinklers to water lots and lots of things. Lots of ground covers, lots of flowers are fine with sprinklers. You just don't water them like a lawn. You may go once a week with a deep soaking. If there are lower water plants, you may go every two weeks with a very deep soaking, but you don't have to reconfigure your sprinklers necessarily to reduce your lawn area. So if I, well, I'm not a good example, but if someone mm -hmm. who had a lawn was thinking about this, maybe the best thing to do is turn on that one sprinkler as a lawn sprinkler and mm -hmm. with the right settings and stuff, and then see where it, where it goes and where the grass grows and make that be your decision about what you're going to keep and what you're going to change because yeah. that way you don't have to do any modifications. I know it, it's, it's easy for people to get real excited about design mm -hmm. and go out. And so I'm going to have this thing and I'm going to have this oval egg shaped sort of thing, but maybe with a little, you know, amoeboid part over here <laughs> and, and thinking about it as far as the look, as though you were doing a painting rather than as far as where is it going to be watered? And if you make a part that's supposed to be lawn, but isn't going to work on that, 
Um, anyway, so there's my thought. Yeah, I mean, what we're suggesting is that you design your lawn based on the existing sprinkler system that was put in. Obviously, it would be optimal if you're doing this from the ground up to design the sprinkler system for your actual use area. But this is, I find that people often get stymied, as I said, about the process of changing over their yard because they think they have to completely redo their sprinklers. They call a landscape contractor to get a bid. Uh, even if they're a sprinkler expert, in many cases, they're going to come in and say, it's easier for us just to redo this than to try and configure your existing sprinkler for new landscaping. I'm suggesting that's not absolutely the case. It is perfectly acceptable to water woody plants, flowering perennials, and other ground covers with an existing sprinkler system that was designed for a lawn. Two things to keep in mind, you're gonna run it very differently. So you need a timer that allows you to run longer periods of watering and or multiple start times on the same day. So you can give a couple inches of water all at once, you know, a good one to two foot depth of watering all at once. And then you can go a couple weeks before you do that again. Many sprinkler timers, older ones, didn't accommodate that because they were really designed for turf. So you may need a new sprinkler timer. That's the first possible issue. The second is if you plant things that block the sprinkler heads, mm -hmm. obviously the sprinkler system will not be as effective. However, my experience has been as long as the sprinkler heads are reasonably well distributed, foliage blocking the spray pattern of part of a sprinkler head puts the water where the plant needs it. At least that plant is happy. You need to make sure that the rain, the water shadow created by that plant isn't starving something on its other side. But for the most part, people do find it isn't that complicated with a little careful placement of the plants, maybe a couple of risers to bring them up a little higher, pop-up risers or whatever, to work with your existing sprinklers. And I would prefer people not get hung up on, we can't do this project because we don't know how to kill the lawn and we need to get the sprinklers completely redone. That's not absolutely true. And I'll tell you, if you wait for a landscape contractor right now, everyone that I know is booked out three to five months. So if you decide in October that you want to redo your backyard, you'll be redoing it probably mid to late part of next spring if you wait for someone else to do it. Uh, they're all really busy and they have massive labor shortages. So everyone that I've been referring people to is coming back and saying, he can't even get out to give me an estimate until December. Yeah, that sounds about right. So, but you can do it yourself. I remember one of my favorite lawn yard makeovers we did was in South Davis where they, I had to get in the middle between a husband and a wife. The wife was the one I did the consultation with. The husband was not present. He was, shall we say, a fairly orderly person. And he didn't really like the idea of reducing the lawn. He's the kind where I went into the garage and all the tools on the wall had their outline shape. Okay, you know this kind? And all the tools were in their place. It, it made me nervous. But we got to the part of how to get more interesting shrubs and flowers into the front yard when he didn't really want to change the lawn was make a little island over here. Okay, see if you can just make a little island in the lawn. We'll choose shrubs that can take lawn watering. We'll be okay with that. And a couple of little perennials like daylilies, which couldn't care less how you water them, or agapanthus. Just make a little grouping of shrubs there, something pretty with flowers that'll be orderly, that he can clip if he wishes to do that. The example we used was Abelia Edward Goucher. If you all know the Abelia plant, it's in the honeysuckle family, but it's a shrub. Little tubular flowers, very attractive to hummingbirds, which is cool. Informal growth habit is what I prefer on that, but you can clip it. If he wants to go out there, you know, take that tool off of its special place in his garage and clip that Abelia, he can do that. It won't hurt the plant. It'll still bloom. And I was very happy to watch over a five to 10 year period as 
another little group of shrubs went in. And then another little area of the lawn got sliced out and a row of perennials got put in over there. And by the time they finally moved away, because she actually came in to say goodbye to me a couple of years ago, hey, we're moving out of the area. It's been so fun working with you. They had reduced their lawn area by about a third with shrubs and flowering perennials. It still looked very orderly and they never changed their sprinklers. They just used the same sprinklers for the shrubs and the perennials. It was just a matter of choosing. You're not gonna put native plants in that situation. You're not gonna put low water Mediterranean plants in because they would get overwatered. But Abelia didn't mind and neither did daylilies and agapanthus and things like that. So I was very happy to have subverted him <laughs> effectively <laughs> and, and he was happy with it. So everything went well. <laughs> Yeah, my situation was sort of similar because we moved into a house, there was a lawn, there was a sprinkler system. Yeah. And over the years, I planted flowers and stopped watering the lawn. I mean, not stopped watering, but stopped mowing the lawn. Yeah. And now it's it's a meadow and with trees and bushes and stuff. And I never changed the, uh, the sprinklers except where I had uh, pots that I wanted to have a little little tiny drip nozzle drip, so, so you take the sprinkler head off and put this little adapter in it put the sprinkler head on sprinkler still worked but you could get a little water out to go in a pot but other than that you know i figure if there's a rain shadow and and something's not going to get watered and it's not going to grow well it's not going to grow <laughs> more or less a fair yes survival Some survival of the we call it darwinian landscaping yes. <laughs> <laughs> One of the simplest things you can do, by the way, if you're thinking about this and you've made, you know, you've killed your lawn and you're thinking about you want a small area of lawn and you want to deal with the other part. I can tell you when you start watering, stuff is going to come up. Some of it will be the grass that you thought you killed. Some of it will be the weed seeds that were lying there waiting for the grass to be cleared away. So typically what happens in a lot of these houses where they stop watering is that a whole crop of weeds comes up with the first, uh, first rain or irrigation. We'll talk a little bit more about weed management later in the program. But one of the simplest things you can do, if you're making a decision, you're going to kill out that area and you're going to plant stuff there and you don't even really know what it is yet. This is where you can get a, a drop of arborist wood chips uh, from a tree service, you can go to chipdrop.com or you can just contact a local one and say, I'll take your next truckload. It'll be about 15 cubic yards, which is about 90 wheelbarrow loads. So it's a lot of stuff and you can take it and just spread it everywhere that you want nothing to be growing like grasses, no annual type stuff to come up. Four, six, eight inches deep is fine. That's actually not a problem. It'll smother out anything that was there, whether even Bermuda grass will be smothered, especially if you do this in the fall when that's beginning to go dormant. And that'll give you time to think about what you're gonna do. And I've had people do this where they get the chips or they buy compost or something. But one of the simplest is just a, a load of arborist wood chips. And they're lying there for a while and they decide to plant some plants. So they go out and they just rake away the chips. They find this amazing interface of where the moist chips have been in contact with the soil. They find all these mycorrhizal, uh, these, these fungal hypha or uh, root-like organisms growing in there. They find all kinds of worms and sorts of beetles and things down there. And the soil has gotten loose and actually improved because the chips are already beginning to break down. So they just break away a couple of feet. They turn the soil with just soil, no chips going into it. And they plant right in that, just the new shrubs, the abelia or the agapanthus or whatever it is that you've decided to do to subvert your lawn. And then they pull the chips back, just making sure they don't completely bury the plant or the stem of the plant. You just keep it open right around the plant. And that's the start. That's how you, that's how you take away a lawn, one, one or two feet at a time. 
Well, that's that's the hard way to do it, Don. I did it the easy <laughs> way. I stopped mowing, and yeah. then I started sticking stuff in there. Well, I'll tell and you. Yes, there was some grass coming up, but so what? It's a meadow, man. It's okay to have grass. Ironically, that's exactly what I did when I was 12 years old. When I was given an entire section, this is true. My parents show, saw that I had an interest in gardening. And first we built a window box because I wanted a greenhouse. So my dad was a pragmatic man. We built a window box instead of a greenhouse. Since I had that full within weeks, he saw that this was clearly an actual interest because he'd had kids. I was the third one, you know? So he knew that sometimes we'd show an interest in something and it was real. And sometimes it was just, I want to learn how to play the xylophone. You know, yeah, that, don't, don't take that too seriously necessarily. It was clear this was an interest. So we then built a greenhouse outside my window, 10 by 10 greenhouse. He and I built it together. I filled that up in no time and started planting out into the yard around the greenhouse. So they said, okay, this is a side yard. You can have the whole thing. You can plant anything you want out here. And uh, they actually, this is also true. They actually gave me a little allowance just for that purpose. This is one of the things that my parents would do is they would say, all right, you can have X dollars a month at, at the garden center and allowed me to fill it up that way. So the very first thing I did, which horrified my father, there was, there was about a 20 by 20 lawn out there and I stopped mowing it and just let the grasses grow. So I was way ahead of my time. I had ornamental grasses in my yard when I was 13 years old. And I had to, you know, I tried to figure out what they were and a couple of more interesting enough to let them grow. And the rest of them, I just started digging out bit by bit so I could plant more flowers and things out there. But for a while, he would walk out there with a scowl on his face saying, why aren't you mowing this lawn? I'd say, it's a meadow, dad. <laughs> out there, any nine-year-olds listening who have to mow the lawn, just try this one. How about a meadow, dad? <laughs> Hopefully I've sparked a revolution somewhere. I know we have nine-year-olds listening, so. Okay. So one of the questions that came in the mailbag was about fruit splitting. Um, yeah. This person has an able orange tree. It's about six years old and they've been watering it with excess water from the shower. And now they're having some of the navel oranges fruit splitting. Is that any relationship to the water? Yes. And I'm not surprised to see a fair bit of it this year. We've had three people in the same week with fruit splitting, which is interesting. It's almost always the navel orange that is the most common. It has a, a tighter skin. It's a internal physiological watering problem. If you stress the tree and let it get drought stressed, and then you water it only shallowly, or you then suddenly give it a deep watering, the fruit that was expanding if it's stressed, will stop expanding in some cases, not all of it, but some of it. And then the waxy layer over the peel will start to increase and the, the skin will thicken. And then you water it and water floods into the plant, into the fruit, and it bursts. And uh, we expect one or 2% of navel oranges to do this in a normal year on a normal tree. Uh, if you're having a higher level, then it tells me that there you have not been watering deeply. Or in this case, and this gentleman was a lot like a lot of others, his watering had been the same as previous years. Yeah. But that wasn't enough this year because the soil was so dry. So what we really kept running into, and I, I mentioned this for all kinds of plants and fruit splitting on citrus is just one example. We started the season with less than seven inches of rain stored in the soil. The soil was bone dry by the middle of March. Ordinarily, when we plant, whether it's your tomatoes or your citrus, uh, 
in March, there's still plenty of moisture down there from the winter rains, and it, there, it simply wasn't there. So we needed to do deeper waterings. And in the case of citrus and other fruit trees, keep in mind that like other trees, their roots go past the canopy of the tree. So having just watered under the canopy and just given it as much water as he typically did in the past, and then exacerbating this with the light frequent amount of water that he was putting on by catching water from the shower, waiting for the hot water to come kind of thing, that just made it worse. But if it's only a few fruit, that's actually pretty normal physiological phenomenon in our area. I would suggest though that water that you're saving, you know, in other, catching it before the hot water gets to your end of the house and pouring it outside, pour it on the geranium in a planter, pour it on the grass, pour it on young shrubs or perennials, things like that, that would make better use of it. Putting on a larger woody plant like that generally isn't terribly effective and might inadvertently increase a problem like the fruit splitting that he had. All right, so the next question that we have is weed management. Well, that isn't really a question. It's a review of weed management principles. Now, this is a writing, it looks like Don wrote it. Is this something that's in uh, one of your articles? Not yet. It, um, the question came up, and I will set this up with this. It was on Nextdoor, where everyone goes for gardening advice, right? Let me say, why do you... <laughs> Why would you go to next door for gardening advice? It's like walking into a room of random strangers and asking for medical advice. Um, you're going to get some variable answers. But the question was, is there a safe weed killer? What? What weed, weed are you killer? trying to kill? Well, that, would be, that would be my first question. What do you question. mean by safe? <laughs> I answer this question more often than I would like because people have read a lot about glyphosate and all the lawsuits and all the controversy about glyphosate. So they're looking for an alternative. What they're really trying to say is you have an alternative to Roundup, which is glyphosate is the active ingredient in most of the Roundup products. So the quick answer to that is there is nothing like glyphosate that you can use in your garden because what it did does, it's available, it's not illegal or anything, goes into the plant systemically. It's taken in by the leaves, translocated through the plant immediately and distribute it all the way through the plant and then it causes it inhibits a particular protein synthesis pathway and the plant shuts down and dies the whole plant the growing point the crown the roots and so on so it kills the whole plant all of the alternatives that someone's going to mention and immediately someone jumped in and said i've heard about vinegar don't get me going burn the tops down that's what they do they burn off the leaves they burn the top they might even kill the growing point if you're lucky they mostly work by stripping the protective layer off the leaf and there are soap based sprays vinegar based sprays acetic acid based sprays pelargonic acid based sprays some that are based on clove and citric acid you name it they're out there and they're all considered organic because they're derived from natural materials all they do is burn down the leaves okay they're comparable to chopping off if the plant do that with a hole you can, you can do it with a hoe, but some people, you know, that's uncomfortable. So they're looking for something that'll do this sort of magically. And they're often looking for something that they think they can crop. What it is, they look out, they go, oh my God, there's a lot of weeds out there. What can I spray with that'll make them magically go away? Nothing, there's no spray. Even, even glyphosate will make them magically go away depending on what they are. But my first question for someone in this situation is, oh, I don't know, what are the weeds you're dealing with? Because I can give you strategies if I know what the weeds are that you're dealing with. Oh, you mean I need to identify them? With any pest, and weeds are a pest, integrated pest management, the first principle is identify your pest. We call it integrated vegetation management with weeds because we like to distinguish them from insects and arth other arthropods and such. 
Uh, but we're basically, it's the same principle. We need to know what we're either spraying, chopping, mowing, killing, bother, burying, whatever technique we're using, because it'll work better. Whatever you do will work better on some things and not as well on others. So the key is to identify the weeds you have. Any garden center should be able to help you. A table full of master gardeners at the farmer's market should be able to help you. And there's some great online resources at ucanr.edu. So you can learn their life cycles and adapt your strategy to the most effective timing for each type of weed. And there are some significant periods of weed management. And the reason I wanted this on today's show was this is one of them. October is an extremely important period for weed management. First of all, most weeds can be controlled pretty easily at what we call the four to six leaf stage. When they first sprout and they're just growing and they've gotten out of the, the cotyledon leaves and uh, something that comes up from seed, two leaves, four leaves, you chop that plant off, that's, you're done. You know, all those weeds you were dealing with in the spring came up in the fall and the winter. And had you gone out there with a hoe on a, on a sunny day in February or even November, depending on the rainfall patterns, you could have prevented all that. That doesn't take long with a hoe or with a top kill herbicide might even do it in that situation. Um, if it's a type of weed that sets a lot of seed and it's something that's primary way of outwitting you is by setting a bunch of seed very quickly, getting at it early, getting it in that four to six leaf stage, you can actually get very good control. You also can smother it or smother the whole area with mulch. It's a really simple way to go. Get a bunch of mulch, get a bunch of arborist wood chips. If you have a tree service that's going to willing to dump, I don't know, 15 yards of them in your, your driveway, uh, there's chipdrop.com. There's a bunch of ways you can get these free. That's the free part. Getting them spread around, we're talking about 40, 50, 60, 80, 90 wheelbarrow loads that need to be wheeled around and dumped and raked out. But three to four inches of arborist wood chips will smother just about anything. And it won't hurt anything to have that much because they're coarse, so they don't lead to rot problems. And then they do gradually break down and improve the soil. So the key timing for a lot of weeds is coming up right now in October. Many winter growing weeds will be germinating in October or, or November with the first rains. I set a sprinkler out to water one tree I was concerned about out in my meadow, which is bone dry. I mean, just it, it's bare dirt, basically. It's mostly native grasses. I set the sprinkler out there four weeks ago to give an overnight soaking to some trees that I was concerned about. A nice, fine, green crop of grass has come up uh, where I watered. Only there, not 10 feet away where the water didn't get to. So I've germinated a whole crop of weeds, which by the way, will make it really easy to control them if I wish to, because they're right there and there's nothing else growing. Uh, but it, they came up because I watered and they thought it was like rain. So we're at a time of year when many of these seeds that have a mechanism that triggers them to sprout based on day length or temperature or other factors will start to come up. You can mulch heavily in places where you've had weeds before to prevent those seeds from sprouting. In your vegetable garden, there's a really simple answer. You can just plant cover crops, vigorously growing plants that will outgrow the weeds. And one of the best examples is fava beans, but others are annual ryegrass, oats mixed with peas, traditional combination, and so forth. These are just plants that grow faster than the weed, so they'll shade them out. And then this is where those little top kill herbicides from the organic origins can be helpful in some cases. On a sunny day, you know, you can just spray it with that acetic acid or that soap-based spray or whatever it is. But you know what? Half a second with a hoe will be just as effective, probably more effective because that'll chop it off, whereas the other one just burns the foliage. So I'm not a big believer in these organic-based herbicides. I think if you can use a hoe, if you don't have some, you know, some injury that's going to exacerbate, uh, that's a really simple way to go when the weeds are only two to three inches tall. The next major growth period of weeds is in spring when the crabgrass, the spurge, the oxalis sprout. 
Uh, same principle, you can smother those areas. And the third major period, and these are what people are looking at now, is when they came up when the soil warmed up to the mid-60s in May. And there's a lot of weeds that come up about the same time we're planting out tomatoes, redroot pigweed, uh, knotweed, things like that. Spurge, uh, particularly purslane, is a very vigorous one that comes up at that time of year. Most of those are very fast growers that go from seedling to reseeding within just a few weeks. So the most important thing with those is to get after them as soon as you see them. So May, June would be, May to June at the latest, would be the, uh, another very important time for weed management. The difficulty are the ones that are like woody plants, trees that are coming up. There's probably gonna take some herbicide treatment or some other just constant cutting, 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 digging, cutting. That's why people often use various weed killers in those situations. There's lots of alternatives to glyphosate in that particular situation. And the ones that come back from bulbs, stems, rhizomes, things like that, Bermuda grass, nut sedge, uh, bindweed, the morning glory, those are more challenging. But again, they can be buried. They can be smothered and smothered repeatedly. When you get that chip drop thing done in your, your driveway, hold three to four yards off to one side. Just pile it up in one part of your garden, water it down, let it sit there. Because you can take that. Let's say some Bermuda grass pops through four inches of, of arborist wood chips, put another two inches on top. If it can't photosynthesize, it can't grow. That's an important principle. Without photosynthesis, all is lost for the weed. So prevent photosynthesis. That's the most important thing to deal with, with these ones that are coming back from bulbs, stems, things like that. And finally, this is, I gave a, a presentation to some municipal weed management folks a few weeks back. And I said, one of the things that bothers me about what you guys have to do is that you're having to control these weeds in bare soil areas. You know, the old saying, nature abhors a vacuum. You have weeds there because you have bare soil. And so maybe you could, you know, these are, as I say, these are municipal employees. Maybe you could do a little budget request for some landscaping, some plants that will shade out, smother out, choke out, crowd out, and ultimately displace weeds as a long-term saving strategy for your municipality. Present it that way. You want to plant Artemisia Powis Castle because it will save on weed management in the future. And there's a gazillion plants I can rattle off and I showed examples of ground covering forms of rosemary. I mentioned a type of Artemisia. Our native salvias, the, the spreading forms of salvia sonomensis, for example, which get one to two feet deep, shade out everything, nothing grows through them. I have stands of them on my property which are completely weed free because they shade out and probably actually suppress the growth of weeds by some allelopathic response as well. So there's lots of plants that will outcompete and shade out many types of weeds, not every type, but many. So simply re-landscaping an area can be a simple way to reduce the populations of many types of weeds in your yard or in larger public areas. So this is October of 2021. I want to direct listeners to an article that Don wrote and was published in the Davis Enterprise in October of 2020 about starting a cool season garden this month. And we don't have time for us to read it right now because I've got to get going. And so it's a good article. I recommend it to you. Thank you. Yeah, it's time to plant vegetables, flowers, and cover crops and grass seed in your yard. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California. What a wonderful world.